Hello all, welcome to another episode of the B-Side for the film stage, and I'm just going to jump right out and say I am tired of these motherfucking podcasts on this motherfucking podcast. (laughs) Uh, This is Dan Mecca. I'm, as always, with my co-host Connor O'Donnell, and today we're talking about Samuel L. Jackson. Connor, do you know what the L stands for? I do only because I looked it up, but I did in the midst of watching these movies. Uh, I did pause because I realized I never knew it. Yeah, and I realized the uh, same exact thing while watching, I believe, Sphere, which is one of yes, our no, four it, yep. B-sides. I was like, you know, all these years, what is the L? What does the L stand for? And so it, for Go ahead. I Well, I was going to say, so I know what it stands for, but for a minute, I and maybe this is like something I misheard somewhere. I thought it was just something he like added. put in there. And then I realized I was confusing it with Michael B. Jordan. Right. Who added the B. Who added the B for obvious reasons. And, yes. um, and yeah, no. So his middle name is Leroy. Leroy. Samuel Leroy Jackson. Good name. Yeah. Good, good name. Good name and a good filmography. Obviously, if you listen to this podcast, you might know this already. He is... He has the highest box office gross of any actor by quite a margin, which is obviously, you know, you could call it cheating because he's in all these Marvel movies, but whatever. I mean, even even before that, though, the Star Wars movies. Well, wasn't he wasn't he neck and neck for a moment with Harrison Ford? Right. Because he made that joke about I feel like on some late night show, Sam Jackson made a joke about um, Harrison. He was ahead of Harrison Ford and then. Harrison Ford came out with The Force Awakens and and, pa- right. and passed him just with one movie because of how big The Force Awakens was. Um, but anyway, nah. which may that may that may be true because uh, yeah. And this is just a this is according to Wikipedia. But in '09, he was inducted into that year's Guinness World Records because he no, was right. the highest. Right. Uh, but yes, then and obviously, then I think if, and, and now um, now he's I think. Now, you know, however many, what, five years since Force Awakens, he is back on top, right? Because I think... Right, because of, of uh, all Nick, the Marvel Nick Fury. Yeah. yeah, and I would imagine, I mean, who knows what the future will bring, but I would imagine that's going to be a hard thing to compete with. That's going to be a hard record to beat, at least in the, in, the, in the next, I don't know, for the next generation, at least, just because it seems like, you know... He's in so many of these properties. Let me ask he you, just, how, yeah. how how old you might know because we're looking at our research and stuff as we're sure. recording this. How old would you think Sam Jackson is? Okay, so that's the that's the question because I do know how old he is. As but do I. It, he is a little older than I thought. Yeah, of course um, he is. I thought yeah, he looks, not by much. I would have. I would have. Um, so while watching Rules of Engagement, which is one of the, not to get ahead of ourselves, but one of the movies we're going to talk about, looking at him against Tommy Lee Jones, I was like, oh, it's weird that they're supposed to be like contemporary. But they, but right? they are similar but they in age. Are. They yeah, are. They're, only, they're only two years apart, which is yeah. funny. And that's also, I mean, Tommy Lee Jones, you know, he's always, I think, looked a little older yes. than he always has been. Yes. And I think, you know, you couple that with your perception of Samuel L. Jackson started older or you know got famous a little older I was gonna than, say, yeah, m- than most people I, so I was going to say he him and Morgan Freeman are similar in that way where they both acted for a long time and had maybe some work coming in you know mm-hmm. as actors you know but did not hit 
until you know their mid 30s at the earliest right so there's right almost going into the going into their uh their 40s basically like or at least for sam jackson and so yeah i mean sam jackson if you look and you know we'll talk i'm sure some of this stuff will come up you know he's, he's born in 48 so he's 71 currently right so he really doesn't pop if you look at his, you know, because it's one of those things. He's in a couple things. He's got a role in Ragtime, right, which is 81, which is actually a movie I've never seen, as a matter of fact, which I always I meant to see. Uh, but even then, 81, that comes out. He's right around 33. So you're right. I mean, even at that time. And then he's like the stick-up guy in Coming to America, and he's basically 40. And that's 88. So you're right in that respect because school days, he's in, do the right thing. He's uh, Love Daddy, right? He's in. Mm-hmm. I love I'm just looking at his Wikipedia. He plays black guy in Sea of Love. <laughs> yeah. Um and then you know Mo Betta Blues read a lot of the early Spike Lee movies. He's stacks in Goodfellas, which is a nice little performance. Yep. He gets yep. killed. Spoilers. And then, you know, Jungle Fever, I would say, is his big Yeah, that's his coming out part. He's he of. is flipper purifies uh Wesley Snipes' older brother who is a drug addict, and I believe kind of running around with young Halle Berry, I believe, I think in that movie. Um, So him as Gator, that's like a standout performance. And he has an amazing scene with Ozzie Davis um, in where like he, Ozzie Davis is his, is, uh, is uh, Gator's father. And it's like a really powerful, and I think it's Ruby D is the mother, if I'm not mistaken. So, and then, yeah, after that, it's kind of, he, he kind of shoots up because he's in, He's in Menace to Society. He's in. He has a. He's a co-lead in Loaded Weapon One, which I loved as a <laughs> yeah. kid. I don't. Do you remember Loaded Weapon yeah, One? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're definitely like I haven't seen it in years, but there are gags from the movie. Yeah, that, that could have been a B side for sure. Yes, a hundred percent. I would say. I mean, if I were, you know, if we wanted to be maybe a little stricter with it, I would say nothing before ninety four. Would, like would count it like because i think i I really yeah, do think Paul, that Paul, Paul Paul fiction is like this is the guy right like this is and still to this day right like is the way you know i think by and large audiences think of samuel L. jackson right? yeah no, so, i mean not nominated nominated you know jules his only nomination which is criminal actually his only no is that true yeah he's only been nominated for one oscar wow yeah Wow. I mean, unless IMDb is lying to me. No, no, no. But, I mean, I, I think you're right. Um, yeah, which is just brutal to think about. And like, yeah, cause, I think because they're because they're because well, he he explodes with Pulp Fiction, of course. And then, yeah. And then after that, you're right. After that, a few that we're not going to do that we could easily do are Losing Isaiah, um, The Great White Hype, Trees Lounge, 187. Um, we already talked about Eve's Bayou, but Freedom Land, even. Would well, be that's like, later. That's later. But yeah. but but so just to set it up today, we are talking about um, a few years after Pulp Fiction. He's he's a bona fide star at this point. He's a, he's already made Jackie Brown, as a matter of fact, in '97, yep. which is I would argue an equally great performance as Ordell Robbie in that movie. Um, yeah, I, I I would say this. I mean, you and I feel similarly about Jackie Brown. Well, Jackie Brown, like yeah, that's my favorite Tarantino. Quentin, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, certainly the, is my favorite and, and, and has been for some time. But I will say, so the four we're doing today in chronological order are 
1998's Sphere, and directed by Barry Levinson from based on the book by Michael Creighton, and also 1998's The Red Violin, which we're going to talk about for a million years because I kind of became yeah. enthralled by that movie, I will say. <laughs> and then 2000's Rules of Engagement, directed by William Freakin, which we might also talk about. Maybe not the movie as much as just Freakin, because he's such an interesting character. Yeah, yes. And then yeah. a movie we hopefully will spend seven minutes talking about, uh, <laughs> 2001's Formula 51, um, which is called the 51st state in almost every other country that's not uh, and t- the I mean, United kind States. of what's weird about it is even uh, if you were to search for it now, um, it's the 51st state. Yeah. Like yeah, if yeah. you, like it was, on IMDb, it was, it it's was Formula released. 51, but like streaming wise, right. Uh, it's the 51st state. Which right. Is right. That's true. And just to shout out, we talked about changing lanes, which he's in, in our Ben yes. Affleck B side. We talked about, um, the caveman's Valentine recently in our Casey lemons episode. So he's come up of course, uh, here and there, like we mentioned before, Eve's by you as well. We talked about, which is also Casey lemons. He's in Heart Eight, which um, you know, shout out to Cinephile creator Corey Everett. Uh, that's um, that is Mr. Paul Thomas Anderson's first movie, though. Um, obviously, PTA called it Sydney, and they changed it to Heart Eight, and he was very mad about that. Even though I will maintain, I'm sure Corey will, I'm sure his blood will curdle when he hears this. Heart Eight is a better title, but yep. Uh, yep. Yep. it is what it is. Um, so. Also, there's a time to kill, which we briefly talked about when we talked about Joel Schumacher. That's not a B side, but he is one of the leads of. He's that also in picture. SWAT, which we talked. So we've kind of danced around him. Oh, you're right, because we briefly, because yeah. Colin Farrell, we talked about a lot of his movies. Yeah, um, yeah. So. One movie we'll definitely, definitely get to whenever we do an Andy Garcia or an Ashley Judd B side is the movie Twisted. Yes. Yeah. Oh, for uh, directed by Philip Kaufman, who directed the right stuff and um, wrote some Indiana Jones movies. So that is a I mean, we'll bury the lead or spoil the lead and say that that's a really bad movie, but an interesting one that we'll talk about um, from 04 at some point. So anyway, um, Sam Jackson, I don't think we need to really go into when we i mean he's one of those people he's been around for so long it feels like he's like a family member like i just it's like yeah like, right i i feel like the i mean i guess just to get through it quickly like i i have to i feel like jurassic park is the honest answer right like you know it's funny i saw, I saw jurassic park in uh, yeah. theaters right as a kid i don't really know like i definitely didn't see anything noteworthy of his until i was older right so like i didn't see even goodfellas or you know true even his brief moment in true romance i didn't see until i was much older so like i but i definitely like as a kid remember hold on to your butts obviously right so um um, that's, I feel like I feel like that's got to be my first exposure to him. You know, because even Pulp Fiction, I feel like I didn't see until right like probably later. 10, 10 years after that or something. I guess I guess I would have to agree with you that I that was the first one I saw with him in it. But in truth, I don't think I would have remembered him in that movie. I do think the first movie I remember him in as him as Sam Jackson is, and this maybe is a little late, but if you think about, he usually makes more adult movies. 
I was I loved the negotiator when I was younger. Yeah, no, that was one. Yes, yeah. I actually I didn't Dude, see the negotiator Danny like Roman, my friend. Did you see it in theaters? No, no, no. But I but no, I, but that for was me a, that was like a TNT staple. That was a hundred percent a Julia Mecca rented it movie, and then it was yeah. on TNT. So I certainly saw it by sure. ninety nine. I was certainly watching it, and I love. I really loved it. I Danny Roman, and then Kevin Spacey plays Chris Sabian. Yeah, and it's like uh, good names. Spacey's good like the best negotiator. And Danny Robin is also a negotiator, but he gets framed and he takes hostages and it's negotiator versus negotiator. That, do you know, I like, the, I like do you know the story about him taking hostages in real life? I do not. And I think you're joking. Are you being serious? No, 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 no. I'm not. Tell I'm me. Really then not. You got to tell me the so, story. So this is based on cursory research, but I found it fascinating because he was in the negotiator. Um, so when he was younger, he was uh you know an activist um he ascent he was one of the ushers at mlk's funeral what yep yep and sam samuel leroy samuel jackson. leroy jackson yes yes go and on and <laughs> so i'm gonna just i and i will straight up read from wikipedia to give you kind of this uh, please please little tidbit of information hang on stand by I'm just going to I'll I'll just start it from basically MLK's assassination, right? Okay. So after according to Wikipedia, after Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination in 1968, Jackson attended King's funeral in Atlanta as one of the ushers. He then traveled to Memphis, Tennessee to join equal an equal rights protest and uh protest march. In, 2000, in a 2005 interview, he revealed, I was angry about the assassination, but I wasn't shocked by it. I knew that change was going to take something different, not sit-ins, not peaceful coexistence. In 1969, Jackson and several other students held members of the Morehouse College Board of Trustees, including a nearby Martin Luther King Sr., hostage on the campus demanding reform in the school's curriculum and governance the college eventually agreed to change its policy but jackson was charged and eventually convicted of unlawful confinement a second degree felony he was then suspended for two years for his criminal record and his actions he would he would later return to the college to earn a ba in drama whoa isn't that insane I mean, it's kind of fucking rad, but... Uh, and now I'm reading the story from watchtheyard.com just to like, you know, as, as you're talking. <laughs> it, the headline is Samuel L. Jackson was expelled from Morehouse in the 60s for holding Martin Luther King Jr.'s father hostage. Yeah. Crazy. Wow. His very own father, Martin Luther King Sr. During the high, yeah. I mean, yeah, he would have been just an adult, right? We said he was born in the late forties. He would have yeah, been, you know, he would have been 20, 20 years old, right? When King was assassinated. Unbelievable. So, Unbelievable. Uh, bananas. Anyway, sorry, I just had to like drop that in there because hey, I thought that was we, fucking hey, crazy. We're living in an active time, and it's <laughs> nice to know that one of our most beloved movie stars has been active himself. That's nice to hear. Um all right, so Sam Jackson, like we said, you know. You know him from Jurassic Park. I believe that's the cinephile card, as a matter of fact. It and is, yeah. You know him from, yeah, we mentioned The Negotiator was a kind of a modest hit in the late 90s. He made the movie Fresh, uh, I think the same year as Pulp Fiction. Um, he's, like we said, he's in Goodfellas. Die Hard with a Vengeance is a big moment. That um, was actually, so uh, 
Jurassic Park was probably technically my first exposure to him. But in terms of like the way you mentioned the negotiator, like that, like this image of Sam Jackson in your head on TV, uh, definitely Die Hard with a Vengeance, I think. Yeah, which is, is I rewatched recently and the ending gets a lot of criticism because of they changed it and what have you. And I guess that I guess that tracks. I mean, it's a pretty soft ending for. I think what, once they basically get is, to the boat, it's kind of tough. I guess in that I, movie, the movie itself, though, regardless, is very entertaining. So I, I, I was happy how much I liked it. Uh, and and also, Will Bruce Willis is so engaged, and him and Jackson have a great thing going. It's kind of it's, yes. it feels nostalgic in that way, and in, in a good way. Uh, so anyway, his first movie, our first movie, Sphere, that we're going to talk about. Um, speaking <laughs> of Jurassic Park, yeah. this is. A Michael Crichton adaptation, and uh, before we dig too deep, I we I got a shout. We got a shout out. Um, we hate movies. Uh, a lovely podcast who they have been uh, twice on our cinephile game nights, and they're lovely people. We we enjoy the company of those gentlemen, and I wanted to just acknowledge that they have recently done one of their episodes on Sphere. As a matter of fact, so it ended up being kind of weirdly coincidental. In us doing Sam Jackson and them covering Sphere, and it just and to just to add to that, uh, also friends of the show, the Mixed Reviews just recently did an episode on Queen Latifah that you should listen to, where they also uh, talk about Sphere. Oh yeah, though I was thinking about that. I couldn't remember yeah. how much they talked about Sphere in that episode. I couldn't. I I didn't remember how much that came up. But yeah, Queen Latifah is in Sphere. She's in Sphere. She's in Sorry. Sphere. For sure. Um, so, uh, shout out to We Hate Movies. Great podcast. Uh, give it a listen. They are uh, very good at what they do. Um, okay. Sphere. Great premise. Great uh, premise. Do you want to set up just kind of the first 30 minutes? Sure. And then we don't need to spoil it at all, I don't think. But you could just set up how good this movie could have been, I guess. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, so, basically... The movie is about a psychologist played by Dustin Hoffman, psychologist named Norman, who uh, essentially gets called in because there has he has been told there has been a plane crash in the Pacific Ocean. Right. He gets there quickly, learns that there well, maybe not so quickly learns, but basically learns that there has not been a plane crash. And uh, is also greeted by Samuel L. Jackson, who uh, who plays Harry and Harry is a mathematician. And he also sees Sharon Stone, who plays Beth, who's a uh, biochemist. Right. He also sees Lee Schreiber, who's an astrophysicist. So he sees these people that he's, you know, knows sort of professionally slash personally. And he's kind of confused by their presence. And then he's greeted by Peter Coyote uh, in, in a, a role. You know, um, as essentially this clandestine government worker yeah. who, and I will say to the movie's credit, gets you to this point pretty quickly, right? Gets the, like literally the opening of the movie is Hoffman in a helicopter on his way there, right? right. So there's not really, I feel like- A helicopter flown by Huey Lewis. Oh, right, right. And there was even gonna, I think I will for say a the, minute- The news, nowhere to be found. No, just just Lewis. which is a little aggravating, but I mean Hoffman gets some news. He gets some crazy news. He does that. Uh, he, by the way, he, it's Huey Lewis. One day we will talk about duets. 
which which <laughs> Huey Lewis is prominently featured in. Anyway, back to you, Connor. We'll do a one-off B-side on Huey Lewis. Um, but basically, Hoffman and company are all briefed on the fact that there has not been a plane crash. In fact, they are investigating a crashed UFO uh, in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, right? Exactly. So they are meant to be sent down to this underwater laboratory to then go investigate. And all of this is done, I think, pretty well, right? Like it's a pretty good, compelling, quick setup. Yeah, right? I mean, it, it's all very silly. Um, sure, sure. You, you it's know, junk science. Well, well, it's, well, and also just like a huge part of this um, is what you learn very early on is the way they are handling this whole situation from top to toe is based on a report that Hoffman oh, right, wrote yeah. himself years earlier as this theoretical, what if we encounter a UFO, how would you handle it? And basically, he wrote this theoretical report kind of based on just nothing, right? Based on his hunches, essentially. And that's why they also picked these people yes. because he sort of he recommendedly said yeah, he, you would need a mathematician, an astrophysicist, a biochemist, uh, and a psychologist. And he, right, and, he, and, he, and he recommends his friends, literally. Yeah. And it's Sharon Stone, Sam Jackson, and Leah Schreiber. So it's like, and he like apologizes to them almost, you know, in the first 20 minutes. It, He's like, hey, it, I did this. In what I think is I actually a pretty good scene. Yeah, I guess... It's in like, the beginning, it's this is so it's interesting. Barry Levinson directed this movie. This is you know Levinson and Hoffman worked together a few times. Obviously, uh, Levinson got Hoffman his Oscar for Rain Man, and then they collaborated again on Wag the Dog, which is right around this which, time in in the middle of this the making of they this made, movie. Right, right in the yeah. middle, in between the reshoots, they made Wag the Dog, and yeah. then and then this movie, of course, and Hoffman kind of signed on because of Levinson because he felt Levinson couldn't prove the screenplay because he didn't really believe in the screenplay anyway. Um, so Norman, who's Dawson Hoffman, basically apologizes to his friends and he's like, hey, look, man, I needed the money. I wrote this kind of half phony report. I recommended you because I knew you. And now this clandestine government's, you know, thing is uh, – taking it very seriously so i'm sorry about that so that whole framing is a little silly but also fine for a blockbuster it's it's okay it's funny right you know? i guess that's the thing i think i think it is played pretty effectively as being kind of funny but um yeah i agree with that but so i think the fact that it's it's almost the, it is the movie acknowledging that like this is silly right like this is silly that this happened right right and i i think that all works pretty well and you know, even as they get down and like I said, there's sort of some junk science involved in terms of how the lab works and you get that kind of initial sort of introduction to to all the goings on. You know, that stuff is fun. Um, but uh, there's like a whole moment where they are realizing they are breathing an atmosphere that is not oxygen. Um, and it's it's like a mixed exotic sort of ex they keep, they call it an exotic gas environment and because of some of the helium involved in it they i don't know if it's directly helium but they mention it has the same effects and so their voices are very high pitched so that they all have to wear these 
sort of voice modulators to return their voice to normal. And there's a whole sequence where they're talking in very high pitched voices and whatever it's played for quick laughs and stuff. And it's, it, it all like you can see, I feel like from a studio standpoint, I think on the page and again, also cause it's Michael Crichton, you can see some like Jurassic park esque similarities in terms of that buildup of like, Hey, here are like, here's our sort of motley crew of people we're going to introduce them to this exotic locale and and how crazy that might seem and how sort of wondrous and awe-inspiring that might seem because as they reveal the uh the spacecraft right it's all teed up very well uh and revealed really interestingly and they ultimately get onto the spacecraft and what is quickly learned is that it is not alien in origin at all it's an American spacecraft, and it, in fact, very likely accidentally traveled through a black hole back yeah. in time and crash landed on Earth like 300 years prior to the setting of the movie. And it's all pretty compelling. Like, it's a it's a really good setup, as you said, Dan. And they discover at the center of this aircraft in its storage, basically, uh, the titular sphere, which is this sort of like champagne-colored mercurial ball, right, right. of of unknown origin, right, and that they very quickly decide it must be alien because it is in fact perfect, right? Yeah, and, you know that's like a whole part where they're like it's a perfect sphere, which is impossible. I, I believe I think that's Liev is saying that. He's, yeah, yeah. He's yeah. basically like a Neil deGrasse Tyson type of a guy, right? Like that's his deal. He's he's the astrophysicist, and it's like, yeah, it's interesting. All of that is interesting. It's compelling when once they enter the spaceship and they realize that it's American in origin. It's like, oh wow, okay. But then what's, you know, and we, I don't, like I said, I don't know that we need to spoil it, but it's, what's funny is, of course, at that moment, there's a storm approaching. So you have Peter Coyote. Also very, very Jurassic Parky. Yeah, very, it, it, yeah. it's the abyss, right? Is a similar yeah. thing. I mean, obviously that's not Crichton, but it's a similar, you know, the, Vibe. you're going to think of the abyss because they're underwater, of course. Sure. And so that's happening. Coyote's like, okay, this was fun. We got to get out of here in a, a few hours. And then, of course, in the night, Sam Jackson. I, let me tell you, actually, I think the most one of the most interesting parts of the movie is Sam Jackson says to Dustin Hoffman before he ultimately decides to go into the sphere as they're kind of going to sleep for a couple hours before they're going to evacuate. He says to Norman, he's like, we're all going to die down here, you know. See, it's curious. Ted did figure it out. Time travel. And when we get back, we're going to tell everyone how it's possible, how it's done, what the dangers are. But then why 50 years in the future when this spacecraft encounters a black hole does the computer call it an unknown entry event? Why don't they know? If they don't know, it means we never told anyone. And if we never told anyone, it means we never made it back. Hence, we die down here. Just as a matter of deductive logic, Norm. Damn, I wish I could get inside that sphere. 
Right. And like Dustin Hoffman's like, okay, dude, I'll see you tomorrow. It's like he kind of handles it. (laughs) And then... And then Sam Jackson goes into the sphere. And then what happens next is kind of the alien part of the film really grabs hold and shit gets real bad. Queen Latifah, like we said, she's one of the operators of this kind of underground, underwater rather, world. Um, Her death is um, won by jellyfish. I guess that's kind of a spoiler, but it's pretty, it's halfway through the movie. Um, The We Hate Movies guys talk a lot about it, so I don't want to take too much of their thunder, but it is a quite unbelievable. uh, We were laughing with them about it before one of our game nights, as a matter of fact. It's it's just such an insane death. Um, And, but anyway shit goes real bad as it tends to do with these movies so okay like we mentioned before they reshot a decent amount of this movie they rewrote some yep. of the movie and and in that interim of the rewrites and whatnot uh levinson went off with hoffman and they made wag the dog which got well received and got people nominations and obviously people remember very well so you know a funny way that that happened um and then ultimately they spent you know you can look it up anywhere up to 80 million dollars making this movie it comes out and it doesn't re it grosses basically 73 and is largely considered a disappointment warner brothers dumps it essentially in february of 98 after kind of many missed release dates and it you know it just comes and goes um i like the poster for this movie i'll say that i uh, it's a memorable poster it's blue I like the font for the for sphere for the title. Yeah, the and the uh, the opening credits are interesting. You know, kind of uh, yeah, and, it's and that's like to, a, a to tracking po- through like nautical, the inside refra- and like and like nautical nautical every, all the monsters. text is like refra- refracted from the inside of a sphere. It's interesting. The, I, I so my sort of history with this movie is. I, it was either gifted to me or something like that as like a pre-owned VHS from Blockbuster, right? And so I definitely like had it on in some kind of circulation. So I've weirdly seen this movie like 15 times. <laughs> um, so funny. But but and it, it, it I don't necessarily it, I, again, I never really had a fondness for it in a way that I was kind of like, I love this movie, but I do think it's kind of fascinating. And even on this rewatch, I sort of think that and I, I, I believe part of it is obviously just because of the that the premise in that's the and the setup of the first 30 minutes of this movie is is great right and it's definitely kind of you know peaks your interest in your imagination and from what i could tell i have not read the Crichton novel um but from what i can tell and in looking into it is that it's largely with the exception of like a couple characters that have been excised uh and some changes in the ending that i think would have actually made the movie better um it's it's a pretty much a story like beat for beat a, a an adaptation of the novel. So that said, is that just because you don't have a David Cap and a Steven Spielberg behind the wheel of it to be like, hey, here's maybe how we pivot this to just make it kind of function a little bit better? That's entirely possible. Um, this movie isn't. It's not bad in the way that a movie like supernova is bad um it's it's bad in like a very specific way in that it feels like it's been fucked with too much as opposed to not enough well but i was gonna that's funny you say that because it's in a way it is similar to supernova because 
you know, Supernova, they they did mess with so much. And are you, are you saying with Sphere they should have messed with it more? No, it's well, no, no, no. It's I'm saying more from like a like Supernova. It does look like not enough like went into that movie. Just even from like a production quality. Oh, I see standpoint. what you mean. Like you see, like when all said and done, when you watch Supernova, it feels like eighty percent of a movie. Right. Whereas like Sphere feels like like one hundred twenty percent of a movie. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. That, that, and so that, that's that that because it doesn't look is under. True. It doesn't look underfunded. The talent, no. the talent in front of and behind the camera, feels you know they're all they're all game, right? Like they're all of the kind of quality you would want for some kind of a blockbuster, and the even the effects themselves are dated. But when you think about them in terms of ninety eight, they don't look bad, right? You're like you're kind of like yeah, no, they were putting everything they could, kind of behind yeah, it. Yeah, I, I remember liking that sphere when I was a kid. I liked that yeah, sphere. It, it it's it's weird because like with Jackson in particular, and I'm gonna bring this up a couple times as we talk about him, he he specifically feels miscast. And I he doesn't give a great performance. He has moments, I think, but he doesn't give an amazing performance. And I think it's not really entirely his fault because I I don't know, I just don't think it, he was right for the role necessarily. Yeah, it, it, it was supposed yeah. to be Andre Brower, who I think. You oh, know, I really? Yeah, and I don't know. Again, that's like an IMDb thing, so I have no sort of context for that in terms of what happened or why it wasn't Andre Brower. But that feels more right. It, do, my, like, it does. Yeah. It does on its face feel more right. I mean, yeah, it's funny because we were talking before the podcast. I think in the, within these four movies, we're going to talk about two of Sam Jackson's weaker performances. And, and he's one of these guys, and in Sphere being one of the two. Sam Jackson's one of these guys, and I feel like I've said this to you, I've said this to other friends a million times. He is, we take him so much for granted. Yes. Yeah. And you can just point to your Hateful Eights, your Django Unchained, where those two roles though they're both Tarantino roles, obviously, they're so different, right? Like they are they are so, like what he's exploring in both performances are so unbelievably from different angles and they're so impressive. And like, to your point, the fact that he's not getting nominated for those, you know, among many others you could point to is criminal. But I think part of it is because we really take this guy for granted. Like, yeah. like Mace yeah. Windu, I'm not a huge Star Wars guy. I really am not, by and large. I suppose I feel like I'm less of a Star Wars guy just because of all of the the other bullshit. The, the dialogue around Yeah, the dialogue. Uh, yeah. But his Mace Windu is on its on its own such a bright spot in the movies he's in. You know, which sure. is like uh, frankly, there's not much to that role. I mean, it's you know, but I think George Lucas has even said a version of this, and I'm sure if I'm wrong, a million people are going to tell me, but like, you know, you cast Sam Jackson in that role because of the gravitas he's going to bring to a role that doesn't really give you much on the page. Probably. No, right. It's it's sheer, uh, I think it's any any kind of compelling nature that that particular character has on screen is all Sam Jackson. Yeah. It, 
it it's all sort of that just level of sort of movie star charisma that he brings and and again even putting him in something like sphere like i i can understand it and he's a he's a value add right in that regard it just yeah i don't know it's he kind of takes a turn in the film after he without going too deep into it yeah, he, he his his character is asked ultimately to do I would I mean the most in terms of just like <laughs> complexities that are introduced and it's like yes. not handled. I mean, I think those are the moments where you feel the cuts and the re-edits and yes. the rewrites really tough. And like cuz he disappears for he like disappears for swaths a few minutes of the movie. Yeah. 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 And 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 like same kind of goes for Sharon Stone. Now it's important. So Sharon Stone, this is kind of the end for her as like kind of a leading lady. You know, this is after the quick and the dead. This is after casino, right? This is after kind of her mid nineties boon. Um, And this obviously underperforms. So I think after this, you see her kind of trickle off a little bit. She makes basic instinct two uh, many years after this, which, you know, doesn't make any friends with anybody. Um, her, I really like her performance in this movie, though. Once again, it feels like a performance that's cut to shreds. And her character is handled with such animosity yeah. where, where, you know, she comes on the ship and everybody's like, yeah, or the, the boat, whatever. And it's like, hey, so, you know, she's crazy, right? Everybody knows she's crazy. We're all aware that she's crazy. She's a crazy person. She's a crazy person. And it's like, yeah, the, as particularly the Peter Coyote. Oh, it's so ugly. Tr- it's like, it's so insane. ugly. And, yeah. and it's like, he goads her because he wants to kind of prove himself right. And it's very, you know, calls her like a, like a cuckoo or like some, you know, you know, uh, now very, nowadays very more derogatory than it would even be then you know what i mean you kind yeah. of you hear it and you're like okay and then and then there's this whole other thing that's alluded to and then i guess kind of confronted it doesn't really take anything away from the plot of the movie but you learn that um dustin hoffman was once her teacher and they had a relationship and that relationship really messed with sharon stone's character's head and Dustin Hoffman really kind of he like semi apologizes for it at the end. He's so shitty about it. Though. He's like, so I mean, he, shitty about it. He's, he's so, so shitty, shitty about it. And yeah. it's I so here's the thing about like the way Hoffman handles this character though. I think uh I think it's pretty good because at least for again a portion of the movie because He's not some kind of like eager beaver scientist who's like, oh, my God, this thing. Right. Like he's just, you know, he's a shrink, basically, that gets brought into the situation. And the entire time he is trying, he's like annoyed that he's there and wants to get out of it, which may be like a meta thing of like the movie itself. But it comes through in the performance in a way that I think actually kind of helps the movie. Um, And it's i i think that's sort of fascinating there is a moment and i feel like i remember this from like all the trailers too when they are essentially in contact with this alien life form calling himself jerry there is this whole sequence where they figure out how to talk to him yeah and again in the junk sciencey kind of way of like figuring things out scenes and movies and stuff like that 
it's kind of interesting. It's kind of fun how they like sort of decode how to talk with him. They do it super fast, which is kind of silly, but like again, it the, you know the the ideas at play here are yeah, kind of fun. Yeah, Liev's character essentially figures out like the code for Jerry's is language. And yeah, then they he go, start... the alien goes by Jerry. It's kind of treated in sort of like a like a glib sort of f- fashion and. Matt, it, Matt, you're being glib. You're <laughs> nice. you're being glib. Um, but yeah, it's it's that scene where they first communicate with him, and the scene ends basically with Jerry type quote unquote typing. Right, I am happy. Right, and Hoffman essentially says like, um, this really worries me. And they're all like, what? He's happy. Don't you want him to be happy? And he, and this is the thing I remember from all the trailers where he's like, yeah, but what happens if Jerry gets mad? Right. Yeah. And and that's where like the scene ends. And it weirdly is like, it's like the moment the movie pivots to being a terrible movie. Cause the movie also does this thing. You're, you're right about that. Yeah. Yeah, it's like the last good scene in the movie where you're like, ooh, okay, this is like compelling and intriguing and whatever. And then it pivots and this mo- the movie does this thing where it shows, it's like chapters, right? And I have to wonder <laughs> if that was a planned thing or not because it feels like it wasn't. It feels like a very disjointed, segmented movie and it feels like they introduced the chapters as kind of a way to cover that up. Yeah, uh, I, I, be- had that, I had that same thought. Yeah, Because the next moment is literally an alarm going off, Dustin Hoffman waking up and all this stuff is happening. And it literally feels like Dustin Hoffman fell asleep in one movie, woke up in another and like just had no idea what was going on right and it's a kind of a bummer because the first again the first 30 of it are really i think interesting well and you're and you're right you don't need and it's weird because you know when you think about the abyss and their application of the natural the storm coming and everything that all fits together so beautifully and ultimately leads to an ending that i do love and i I do love the abyss um I really, I, I frankly love basically every movie James Cameron's made, if I'm being honest. Um, but this movie, you don't need that storm, right? Like you could just have it be Sam Jackson chooses to go into the sphere and what happens next gets crazy. Because then when you add the storm, yeah, the the back half of the movie becomes this survival thing when it could have become more of a deep dive into what is going on and it's a very cerebral movie so i feel like that you could just follow that lane right yeah and And even the stuff it presents at the end there's a lot of solaris things in it um which if you know that book or those two movies it's all about kind of you know what your mind will you know your mind playing tricks on you because of your environment and what have you so that comes into play in a big way which even that's introduced kind of late and even that's interesting and you go like oh if that had been introduced in a more kind of full way earlier this could have all been more tense so yeah i don't know i mean it's one of those things sam jackson he's kind of disappointing in it like we said the movie itself was disappointing upon release. Um, it's interesting when you look at Dustin Hoffman's filmography, he doesn't make uh, a movie for a few years after this. He's in The Messenger, the Joan Arc movie, uh, the Luc Besson movie. But other than that, his next movie is Moonlight Mile. And that's mm. that's 2002. So he definitely takes a break, which 
Um, I actually love Moonlight Mile, but that's that's an underseen. That would definitely be a, a Dustin Hoffman B side if we ever get to him. But yeah, not not a not a great movie. Worse than I remembered. Uh, like like we said, Cer- yes, certainly. Know. Like I yeah, like I like I said, I I had seen this movie on some kind of a repeat quite a few times, so at least had some sort of a fondness for it. And this is kind of the end. I mean, Crichton. It's kind of the end of the Crichtoning, Crichtoning, because. You know, he has stuff like oh, it's interesting. I mean, there's timeline after this, right? And that's kind well, of well. There's, though, right? there's well, there's timeline, and there's a little movie called The Thirteenth Warrior, my friends. Oh right, uh, um, yeah. which we will one day cover when we talk about the one and only uh, Antonio Banderas. Um, but that is so. Yeah, The Thirteenth Warrior, kind of similar to Sphere, is plagued by delays and ultimately comes out in '99 and loses a lot of money. And then I think Timeline, I'm just checking myself as I type. Timeline comes out in... I want to say it's 02. 02 or 03. I was going to say 03. Um, Let's make sure. And the answer, my friends, is... Timeline, 2003 film with a budget of 80 and it made 40. Um, Richard Donner directed it. So yeah, basically... And I, you know, it's funny. We were talking about this. I loved the book Timeline when I was a kid, so I was disappointed by by the movie. Um, anyway, this is kind of the end of Crichton, and it's funny. Of course, Crichton has since passed, and now Westworld, the show on HBO, has you know has reignited some of that stuff, which is cool. Um, whether or not you like that show, you know, Crichton was somebody. Have who, you seen the movie? Have you seen Westworld? Movie? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, yeah. I've seen the movie from from the seventies. And Crichton himself directed movies. Crichton made The Great Train Robbery with Sean, uh, Sean Connery, which is an underrated movie. So he he knew how to make movies, um, and he would make them every once in a while as as the director himself. So definitely a guy who made some great stuff worth checking out. But Saphir, sadly, as a movie, is not one of them. Our next movie is my favorite movie of the four. Um, it's The Red Violin. It came out the same year, like we said. Um, after a festival run, it came out in the winter of 1998, directed by, I want to make sure I get his name right, Francois Girard, and written by Don McKellar and Francois Girard. Don McKellar is an actor. He's in the movie. He's Evan Williams, who's one of the uh, lab techs at the end of this movie. Don McKiller also directed a movie that came out a few years ago that I really liked with Taylor Kitsch called The Grand Seduction, which is also a Canada set uh, movie. This movie set in Canada, among other places. Um, okay, I'll talk about this movie for a little bit just because Go I it. got really into this one. So I'd seen this movie a long time ago, also came out in 1998. Revisiting it was like it was like an exciting thing because I really kind of loved it. Um this the score for this movie won the Oscar, which is cool. Uh, in I want it must have been the '99 Oscars. Um, mm. And it does start Sam Jackson, though he doesn't really come into play until the last fifth of the movie, essentially. Yeah, which I sort of I had seen this movie as well, and I sort of forgot about that. And then I sort of had like a you know whatever, like a mild panic while I was watching this movie. Cause I was like, wait, is he like not in this? Like, why are we watching this movie? Is he like, and he is, I mean, he is the star. It's just, it's structured in a way that yeah. he doesn't star in the movie until 
the last part of it. And it's interesting. It actually won the Oscar in the, for the 2000 Oscars. So even though it came out in 98, there must've been a technicality that allowed it to apply. Um, that's interesting. Um, maybe it came out in the States. Maybe like a U.S. release. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, so this movie, it's about the long life of a red violin, right? So it, so, um, the movie starts in, it's book ended by an auction in 1997. Um, in I believe Montreal, yes, yes. Yeah. and um, we got our boy Confiori being the auction guy, which I loved. Our boy, right. uh, who is in Caveman's, uh, who is Valentine. In Caveman's Valentine with Sam Jackson. So basically, this movie is split up into five segments, right? So you have Cremona in Italy in 1681, Vienna in the late 1700s, Oxford in the late 1800s. Shanghai in the mid 1960s during revolution during China's kind of uh cultural revolution Maoists versus um you know the other side and ultimately Montreal where when in the late 90s where the auction is happening so the first bit is about this violin maker whose wife is expecting a baby and tragedy strikes after his wife, this woman, Anna, uh, approaches one of her servants, I suppose. Yeah. And uh, Keska and asks, she's a fortune teller and she asks her to tell her fortune. And it's actually to tell her baby's fortune, but she's like, oh, I can't tell your baby's fortune because he's not born yet, but I can tell your, I can tell your fortune. And another, like a second bookend to the movie is that fortune telling. So basically she leaves the fortune teller. We don't really know what happened at the beginning of the movie. And she soon goes into labor. And soon after she dies in childbirth and the baby dies as well. And the violin maker gets there too late and everybody's dead. Does the baby die? Yeah, the baby isn't dies. It, yeah. Isn't, isn't, uh, isn't the servant woman fortune teller holding a crying baby? No, she's, I mean, unless I miss this, she's holding a baby who, and then she puts a cloth over the baby. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. So right, maybe I missed that. Okay, so that's sorry, the end. So he's obviously very bro- heartbroken about this. Um, and it's kind of cool. The opening shot of this movie is, is his shop making a violin and then you know, his shop workers making a violin and then him ripping, like, you know, destroying the guy who made it being And like, it does, and it looks like, I mean, to, you know, to whatever, to you and I or whatever, you're looking at it, you're like, that looks like a beautifully yeah, yeah, made yeah, violin. Yeah. And he tears it apart and like smashes it up. And, yeah. then, and then basically what I like about this movie is it jumps a century to Vienna where it's a, a hundred years later, this um, monastery has had the violin um, and you know, monasteries back then also served as orphanage orphanages. And this young boy who's an orphan picks up the violin, the red violin, and is like a prodigy and is gifted essentially to a man who teaches, you know, violin and music and whatnot and gets him on audition with this incredibly creepy it's like a prince right or something like that yeah yeah and who has these really long i mean it's beautiful he looks like the devil right it's like yeah he's got he's got these long fingernails fingernails he's got kind of a michael wincott vibe like it should have been played by michael wincott certainly and um and the boy, the the monks tell the piano, the the music teacher, he has a heart condition, so just be careful. 
And the boy in the middle, right as he's about to begin his audition, his heart gives out and he dies. And so they bury the violin with the young boy at the monastery where the boy came from. And then the next shot, you see the grave broken open. Grave robbers have robbed it and the violin is gone. Another generation goes by and we're in Oxford and these gypsies have had the violin for presumably a few generations. And the one and only Jason Fleming shows up uh, playing uh, Lord Frederick Pope, who this is, I want to, this is a total guess, but I got really into some of the history here. And I have to think his character is kind of based on the Hungarian violinist, Joseph Joachim, who's a real person and like a significant musician of the 19th century and, you know, worked with Brahms and whatnot because basically Frederick Pope takes the violin from the gypsies and Greta Scacchi is his lover and he is already famous, but he becomes even more famous because of the red violin. And he's like composing these amazing works, you know, to the, uh, to the begrudgment of the local composer at the, the, the music hall that they're playing at. And basically it just had me thinking, I would just be curious to talk to Fleming and see if he based or, or Gerard and, and see if he, if they based this character on Joseph Joachim, because it just feels like that's the right, I don't know. It just feels correct. Well, and the, it should be, we should note that the story itself is sort of yeah, based gonna, on a real rumor, like a real well, legend. It's not a, it's not a rumor. So, so, so yeah, I mean, it's a good time. So, well, the, 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 the history of the violin is a rumor, but, uh, yes and no. Yeah. Yeah. So, right. Yeah. So, so basically, um, and before I do that, I'll just finish it. So basically that story too, basically ends in tragedy and then, uh, it becomes an antique. It's sold, and we wind up in Shanghai, where it, that's our fourth story. And there, essentially, I guess I feel bad like ruining all these, st- but it, but it's not really one of those movies. It's kind of like, no, you kind of, you kind of have to watch it, and like, uh, there is a reveal in this movie that. Which is funny. I I remembered it not as a reveal, but it is a reveal. So no, right? Me me too, right? And so I was a little confused because as it was happening, I was like, "Oh, I thought there was more to this." And yeah, later they show they show you the more to right. it, right? But in my mind, that stuff came sooner, and and I always thought that this movie was just a little bit more straightforward about it, right? And it's it's weird because the movie treats it as a reveal but also seemingly doesn't really hide it well that's what i i mean and I, that's kind of what i loved about this movie so just to, to kind of close the loop shanghai there's a revolution going on um western art is being you know it's criminal criminalized right and this man who he's he's on trial essentially for these like western he's teaching Western music to his students, right? And he's getting criticized and uh, berated by the government for this. And this woman, Zhang Pei, basically is instrumental in taking the focus off the teacher and getting him out of a bad situation. And then you see them burn his violin and you think for a minute it's the red violin, but then you learn that 
this woman, this woman actually is the one who has the red violin. And then what happens after that leads to the red violin surviving once again. And then ultimately wind up in Montreal where Sam Jackson plays this guy named Charles, who is an appraiser who has discovered the violin, right? And learns or believes he might be this famed red violin that, you know, legend has it is this one of a kind, amazing musical instrument that was built in Cremona in the late 1600s. And look, a lot of this is based in fact, right? Cremona was, is a place in Italy where they make violins, right? So that's like a real thing in history, right? That's where some of the greatest violin makers in the world came from that place, right? So, um, and then what happens at the end, we won't give away, but it involves Sam Jackson in a great, and I will say this because it is about Sam Jackson. I love this performance because he's playing an asshole. He is a, he is an unrepentant, like very focused kind of piece of shit guy who's like rude to, to like, uh, Hotel staff, hotel staff and, yeah. and wait staff and you know one of these guys who's just like his job's more important than anybody else's job. Bonjour, Monsieur Moritz. Bonjour. Oh, and I have an envelope for you from uh, University of Montreal. This says this arrived at seven o'clock. I was in my room. Yes, sir. Well, why wasn't I notified? Sir, you told us not to disturb you. Not for a courier. I didn't know, sir. If a courier comes, you call me. If a fax comes, you call me. Yes. It's important. Do you get it? You knock on my door and you put it in my hand. Comprende? I need you to acknowledge. Yes. This is my business. But I like, I always like when, when likable actors portray characters like that successfully because for as much as there is so much conflict in so many movies, I liked how that character, that's just such a clear choice, right? It's And it's not even needed to the story, but it gives his character so much character in a movie that's split up into these five different stories. Right. And if this, because like, because like the other way to go with this character, right, is, a, is like a Tom Hanks, Robert Langdon-esque sort of right, right. nice bookish person right and that that's not to say that sam jackson doesn't necessarily seem bookish right but it is like he to your point there is kind of an arrogance about him that drives this thing through and it's sort of obviously an obsession of his which is what makes his part of the narrative i think compelling i just think it's a little weird the way the movie chooses to structure itself because i feel like it very interestingly teases you you know as as it keeps cutting back to 1997 it teases you that there is like something more going on in this part of the story that you know that that you're not being shown right and you ultimately obviously get to it as you see sort of what sam jackson has been working on and is doing and that's sort of where the reveal of the history of the violin comes into play as well. And I can't help but think that if there was a little bit more of what's, I guess, you know, you'd call the fifth act of the movie, if there's a little bit more of that peppered in between the other segments of him trying to investigate the history of this thing, once he sort of becomes suspicious of what it is, um, I think a, it feels a little bit more like his movie, which not that it needs to. It's just I think that would be a result, right? And B, 
I think it it feels a little more cohesive. Um, and it feels like a little bit more of a proper mystery because again, when this movie gets to his part of the story where everything comes together and is revealed, it's like the questions are asked and answered in the same segment of the movie. Um, and it just as a compelling narrative that felt a little weird to me on a rewatch. Yeah. Would, I, I hear all of that. I mean, yeah. it's one of those things. I, think I still it, really, I still really liked it. Like it's a, it's a super interesting movie. To your point, his performance, I think, is really great, and and he kind of tackles it in a really deft way. Um, but I just think that if if this movie's trying to present some kind of a, you know, uh, a, a maybe like a deeper sort of mystery about itself, it it kind of fails in that. Yeah, I mean, I I think that's secondary to what Gerard is trying to do because I think ultimately this movie is basically a celebration of language and time in art right because the one honestly one of my biggest takeaways of this film was the languages right because you have italian right Mm -hmm. you have german in vienna right you have um obviously english in oxford and then you have mandarin in shanghai and i'm also just i'm using the wikipedia as a reference as well and then kind of back to english and french in montreal and i just love hearing all those different languages you see all these different time periods you know Movies that are structured like this tend to get criticized as time goes by. Obviously, one thinks of something like Crash, which is totally different because that's kind of more – it's not totally different, but the structure, it's all – the intertwining storylines thing is a little bit more abrasive in what it's building and a little bit more in your face. This is more – there's a calmer nature to how this builds out and even to the fact where they're not really giving you like – time cards of where we are like it's really if you didn't read about the movie you wouldn't necessarily always know the time exactly for all these different you know yeah. what i mean which i yeah. i think is smart and um just to kind of set up what the violin is based on and really what what drew gerard and don mckeller in creating this is the red violin of this movie is based on the red mendelssohn which was built, which is a real violin, which is built in 19, uh, 1720 by Antonio Stradivari, right? So he built it in Cremona where he built all of his violins and it became this famous violin that bounced around for centuries. And to your point, Connor, before, you didn't always know where it was. And uh, as the title says Mendelssohn ultimately ended up owning it for a period of time until it was sold at auction in 1990 and is now to this day in the hands of Elizabeth Pitcairn, who's an incredible violinist. So there is an actual history, right, that led to this being sold at an auction, probably not unlike the auction that's portrayed in the film that led to this great violinist. And you should listen to her her music, Elizabeth Pitcairn. She's amazing. So that's interesting. And Gerard basically taking this idea with McKellar of like, well, okay, well, where where was that violin for all these centuries and all these generations? And, and I, I guess that's the thing. They they sort of go the extra mile to sort of um to indulge the more sort of salacious rumors behind the the making of the violin, right? Which were real rumors about the actual violin. And they sort of like I said, they sort of indulge that aspect of it without going too much into it but right and the, and 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 the real 
history of this violin, if you read up on it, there is tragedy that we do know of for fact peppered in throughout of their owners. Of course, like yeah. there would be with anything, obviously that survives centuries. People die, right? I mean, things happen. Yeah, so. and it's and again, this I don't. This movie does not even pretend to be any kind of like a, uh, you know, any kind of an accurate sort of retelling of of the actual history of that particular violin again it like it, it very much leans into the kind of the more fascinating uh salacious bits of it but to your point earlier dan i don't necessarily think developing some kind of a juicy mystery around it is really ultimately what gerard is concerned with as a filmmaker and i don't think he needs to be i do it does make me wonder though why not just why not just cut the movie chronologically, right? At, no, le- see, at least as it at least as it pertains to the creation of the violin. I don't know. I mean, because this is one of these movies where it's like I think the sh- without the without the structure the way it is, it's it's it is less enticing to me because sure. Even though we both went into this as it was a rewatch, the ambiguity of the beginning is. So it's salacious and you're like wait what's yeah, going sure. on and like and i like they repeat this oct this auction they kind of repeat the same moments over and over again with each of these different people and you that are ultimately coming into play yeah and yeah. you ultimately learn that basically um descendants of a sort from each of these stories in one way or another are at the auction trying yeah. to acquire this violin and what i like so this is this is what maybe what I'll end with here with the red violin. Cause I could talk about it forever. Um, and I would encourage everybody at the very least go on Spotify and listen to the red violin score, which is unbelievable. Start with the score, go to the movie. It's on Prime right now if you're listening. And um I would encourage everybody to check it out. I mean, it's it's a I think it's a very memorable tale told well. Um what one of the many things I like about this, and Gerard just, you know, you might not know this filmmaker. He um worked a lot with Peter Gabriel early on, made some really cool work with him. He made a movie that I really like that I feel like me, Connor, me and you both must have watched in film school, a movie called 32 Short Films about Glenn Gould. Yeah, a movie I like a lot as well. Yeah, really Actually, good yeah. movie. Um since then he's made lesser seen movies. He made a movie called With Colm Fiore, by the way. Right, right, right. He yeah, made he made a movie called Boy Choir with Dustin Hoffman recently. Uh this movie, The Song of Names, I haven't seen, which Clive with Clive Owen, I, which came out recently. He made this movie Silk with uh Kira Knightley and Michael Pitt, which I did watch um in preparation for this. It's unfortunately not very good, uh, which is a shame. But anyway, the thing about the red violin that sticks with me at least is it's this idea of, you know, at auctions, 
whether it's a painting, whether it's a an antique, you know, instrument or piece of furniture, there's that always that obvious thing that people do where you go like, well, wh- why is this thing worth this, right? Like, I mean, you know, this violin yeah. from 1720, right? You know, if, you, if you're talking about the actual Red Mendelssohn, like why did it sell for this much money? And I think what's interesting about this movie, it's a good answer to that question, right? The reason things of import from long ago matter so much to admittedly a small percentage of people, people who can afford to care about it, obviously, is because of the lives lived within and around those pieces. I think of another movie that I love, Neil, uh, a Neil Laboot movie called Possession, which is kind of a similarly structured movie about historians, Gwyneth Paltrow's in it, Jeremy Northam's in it, Aaron Eckhart's in it. I believe it's Jennifer Ely. They're researching this romance that was like long rumored and in their research of this romance, a a new romance blossoms. And I like stuff like that when it's told well, because it really does get down to that beauty of, of, of the past of this, of what, you know, what sadness, what joy, what, what mistakes linger in the wood and the varnish of the red violin and 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 Gerard is in a very matter of fact confident way showing you and I think it's up to each viewer to, to decide whether it matters but I think I'm certainly one of those people who can roll their eyes at like oh this Jasper Johns painting sold for two million dollars you know whatever <laughs> but then when you watch when I watch a movie like the red violin I remind myself that maybe I'm being short-sighted when yeah. I have that opinion. I, I yeah, it's I, I would say I mean I think if you're looking for like a, a quick comparison to this movie, the only other kind of immediate no like well-known equivalent I could think of was Cloud Atlas, right? Where it like seemingly tries oh, that's to interesting. tackle that's interesting. Se- seemingly tries to tackle some of the same kind of dynamics. Cloud Atlas obviously way more fantastical and frankly like ham fisted than this. Well, let movie me ask. Is. Well, let me let me ask you, which one do you prefer? This one, obviously. Yeah. Well, okay. I, okay. I say that I say that as someone who uh, likes. Cloud I was going to say that a, that, that, that a little surprised me because I thought yeah, you no, no, liked no, no, Cloud I, Atlas. I appreciate I appreciate the filmmaking ambition of that movie, and I think that's where my love for that movie comes in. Um, but in terms of what it's actually trying to do. I I just think this movie kind of blows it out of the water in so much as succeeding at it and doing it way more deftly and like and this movie's not necessarily you know a super subtle movie uh by any means at least in terms of its aesthetic but it very much is more subtle in trying to achieve that sort of interconnected across the sea of time type thing than cloud atlas does they even frankly and i don't know if this is intentional i i have to feel like it kind of is but like whereas cloud atlas decides to take the same seven or eight actors and and sort of uh you know generally misguidedly recast them across all of the different things right all of the different timelines and stories and what have you this movie instead takes like visual cues and kind of injects them into the other stories totally. which is a just even on a personal level like i've tried to write things like this that try and do that and like this would be an ex- if i had to point of an example of a movie of like succeeding at that this is a hundred percent it because there are these these visual motifs like we even mentioned that uh 
that prince in the uh first of these sort of initial stories right well the second uh, yeah the second yeah 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 sorry he vaguely resembles this uh this guy who shows up in the 1997 story and it's not the same actor, but he's this kind of gaunt looking, um, bespectacled guy who comes in yes. seemingly kind of wormy and evokes the same thing sort of visually. There's even a, you know, there's a violinist who shows up in that portion as well, who sort of, it, again, is not the same actor, but resembles the composer in that story a little bit. And so it's it they, they, these things kind of ripple across a little bit and it's smart and it's calculated and it's well-placed. Um, and I think all of that and I think what the movie, to your point, what he's most concerned with, I think he accomplishes. I think I'd have to wonder if it's some kind of a Again, it's not really a studio movie, so I don't know who's given the notes necessarily, but like I have to wonder if the leaning in on sort of the the more juicy mystery of it is a little bit more of a studio thing be- or 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 s- something to that regard, a stakeholder thing, I'll say. Um cuz it doesn't feel like it's very interested in that. And yeah. so Yeah, I I would be surprised how I would be surprised if this movie got a lot of interference because it does feel very kind of singular in its decisions. Yeah. Um, and look, uh, just to finish with Sam Jackson, I think it's cool he took the role. I mean, this is a cool role. He, you know, he's admitted in many interviews like he has trouble saying no to things because he was a struggling actor for so long. You know that you know saying no to roles feels wrong. So like, obviously, he's made any myriad of things over his uh, celebrated career, but this. Even with all of that said, this does feel like an outlier, and I think it's really cool that he that he did it. So, and I think unlike Sphere, he he manages to fit better into this movie. And it's you know, if you have sort of a vision of Sam Jackson in your head, I would say that this does not fit that vision right a little bit. And uh, yeah, and exactly. I think you know, it might be maybe I mean, in terms of a maybe more known roles, like maybe it skews a little closer to something maybe obviously less eccentric than like uh than Mr. Glass or something like that but um but maybe a little more in that ballpark than say obviously Jules from Pulp Fiction I will note again also not unlike Sphere he was not supposed to be in this movie um it was originally supposed to be Morgan Freeman oh and I you know I'd say that sounds like a better fit Maybe no, right? like I, no. You he's, don't think so? He's, I I love Sam Jackson in this movie. It's hard for me to no, think. No, no. Of. I think I th- I do as well, and I think he's. Re- but I think if you're going for like the if you're writing this thing, who's the first person you think of? I I feel like I guess yeah. I, I, I yeah, guess but, so. Yeah. But uh, and I frankly have to imagine that you know that's happened to Sam Jackson more than once in his career, but. It's an interesting thing to note because it's it is this trend I think that pops up where I feel like to your point Dan we take him for granted as an actor in a way that even these roles that we are pointing out are not even roles that were initially offered to him right? yeah right and, right right and um and even our next movie um which is Rules of Engagement from two thousand which is a William Freakin movie, uh, sort of a, you know, a uh, war slash uh, military legal drama, basically. Um, 
was not initially supposed to be him either. Who was it? And I'll I'll, I'll wait till we get into it, but then I'll I'll mention. Now who. it's written it's written by Stephen Gagan, who wrote Traffic only. Uh, who wrote the same year wrote Traffic, and I want to say won the Oscar for it. Yes. So this. <laughs> This year, the guy who wrote this movie won the Oscar for writing, which is interesting yeah. to think about. Um, and then obviously Gagan went on to write a few other things, including Syriana, which he also directed. And then he directed a movie that came out this year, 2020, a movie that you might have heard of called Doolittle. Um, so <laughs> well, that's weird to think about, but 20 years does a lot of things to a lot of people. Um, rules of engagement. Connor what tell us what rules of engagement's about you let's keep it let's keep it brief because yeah i'll I'll go through it really really quickly because i want to talk about freaking so yeah 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 i'll go through it really quickly so uh, samuel l jackson plays a colonel in the marines uh as does uh tommy lee jones um as we mentioned it you know they're essentially contemporaries right the movie opens in vietnam 1968 they are essentially just in a situation that goes bad Tommy Lee Jones is is like moments away from just getting killed. He's the last one of his part. You know, they basically split up and take two different routes. Tommy Lee Jones is the last one of his group of men that is alive. And because of some quest, very questionable decisions that Samuel L. Jackson makes, he winds up saving Tommy Lee Jones. Uh, basically, we flash forward to 1996 and Tommy Lee Jones is retiring you get the sense that in between, obviously, the incident we just saw and now he essentially became, you know, stuck to a desk, uh, became a JAG attorney, right? And that's how he spent the remainder of his military career before retiring. Samuel L. Jackson, uh, on the other hand, has just been promoted to a new command and he gets sent on a mission to Yemen to essentially babysit a an embassy there that's run by Ben Kingsley in a very Ben Kingsley performance. And yeah, um, it was weird. It's a weird that he took this role. I mean, I guess he always took roles like this, but like I was, when he shows up at the beginning, I'm like, Ben. Yeah. yeah. It's a little, it's very, it's weirdly kind of, I, I, I sort of was half joking about the Ben Kingsley performance thing. Cause it feels like a role he would take now as opposed to a role he might've taken in 2000. But um, but anyway, he essentially plays the U S ambassador to Yemen and, uh, the embassy is essentially, you know, in the midst of a bit of turmoil because there is a protest going on outside. Right. So Sam Jackson and his group of Marines come in to extract, uh, Ben Kingsley and his family and they do so. And Sam Jackson goes back because some of his men are down and he goes to retrieve the flag. And in the midst of that happening, there is some sniper fire coming at them. But there is also a whole bunch of other fire that's happening. And it just everything gets kind of confusing. and You don't know what's going on. And Sam Jackson essentially orders his men to fire at this crowd of people because they are firing at them. And you do not see this. So you don't really know. And yeah, you see, you see, yeah, you see Sam Jackson like see something from his his uh, vantage point. And then and then he makes this this obviously call crucial call. Right. Yeah. And essentially they so they open fire 
uh blair underwood is kind of there in a quick uh quick roll and he, he come, um, and he comes back later yeah, yeah yeah and it's it's i mean it's pivotal to obviously the mechanics of the movie but blair underwood kind of quickly questions him sam jackson replies waste the motherfuckers as obviously only sam jackson can deliver and they open fire on this crowd of people we then cut to uh bruce greenwood who is the, yeah, the, is, the wood is, the, is, the wood is very green on green this one. yeah yeah is he the who is, is he the i believe i'm looking secretary I'm just of state making sure i believe he is the national security advisor bill so oh, okay got yep. it got it yeah so he basically is receiving information of this whole thing and he's like what the hell happened like this is crazy right things sort of speed up and quickly you said, you said 82 people died yes yes sorry yeah. i did not say that but yeah so 83 people have been killed uh, uh, so yeah Ye- yemeni people have been killed 83 of yes. them many more wounded and then i think it's like two or three marines maybe three more marines. have died yeah. yeah yeah three marines are killed and all the evidence would suggest uh would suggest that uh these people were unarmed civilians right and that's the whole thing so sam jackson gets court-martialed he gets charged with a couple things but namely he gets charged with murder yeah which it's it's bad yeah yeah, it's crazy and so anyway so he it becomes this whole thing he goes to none other than tommy lee jones to defend him right jones kind of reluctantly agrees jones goes to yemen to investigate and really doesn't find anything but kind of damning evidence uh, and has a hard time sort of proving Jackson's uh, supposed innocence. Meanwhile, Bruce Greenwood and another and a group of people essentially recruit Guy Pierce uh, in the 2000s Guy Pierce role <laughs> uh, uh, as a uh, he plays Major Biggs. Is it Biggs or Briggs? Um, it is Major Biggs. Biggs, yeah. And, and, and it's uh, funny that you just made that mistake because Tommy Lee Jones makes Jones that mistake in the in movie. The... Because this movie, one of a few failures, I think, in this movie, it it sets up that Tommy Lee Jones is not perhaps a very good lawyer. And like you said, he's been sat, he's been sidelined for basically three decades with this injury that he accrued at, in that Vietnam situation that Sam Jackson saved him from. And he's apparently been kind of a despondent, you know, soldier ever yeah. since and has done his job, but maybe not particularly well. That's what the movie would have you maybe believe. But anyway, I will pass it back to you. Yeah, no. And basically, so it's interesting because the the guy Pierce character is a little more intricate and fascinating than you would maybe believe if you're thinking of like 2000s guy Pierce walking into the room because yeah. he he's putting, he on, almost, he's putting on an accent he's putting on an accent he well he's yes he's very much doing some kind of an accent uh no, it's a, but, i mean i i do you think it was a bad it was just a new york accent it's, it's like it's, a heavy it's just new york he laid, and i and i know that obviously he's he's fighting against his own accent but like we also know that like you know if you watch la confidential you know guy pierce can put on just a general american accent quite well so like it's just like 
very unnecessary in my mind like that just not he's like laying it on so thick it's so yeah it's funny in a way that's I always, mildly distracting to me i i guess so i always re- it's funny though i always remember this performance from this movie so i don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing like yeah. he, he's really it's not a it's not a bad performance i just think the accent is like it's like a hat on a hat a little bit but um but yeah he his character's kind of interesting because he is he's not out to be some kind of like smarmy I mean, it's very, it's very Jack Kevin Bacon from Fugit Men. This whole movie is a feels like, like it is, it is yeah. sort of templatizing itself from that movie and sort of the, yeah. It's like what if, what if the pretty clear moral politics of a few good men were way were more muddy, muddled. Yeah, and I think, you see, here's the thing: if that's the elevator pitch to this movie, I'm still in, right? Like, and I think there are portions of this movie. And freaking, and we can get into freaking in a second, because it's he's got a fascinating filmography yes. and a fascinating career. But he's not a bad filmmaker, and so no. it it there are scenes that tackle this moral ambiguity and even paint Sam Jackson again, like I said, even from the outset of the movie in a semi questionable light. So this, well, yeah, the movie does initially for a minute. Uh, present a Rashomon-esque questioning of like the truth, right? Yeah, I mean, this is, so this is a movie, there were there were a few movies like this that came out in the 90s, right? Few Good Men obviously comes up. Courage Under Fire is another sure. one. Yep. Um, the Ed Zwick movie with Meg Ryan and Denzel, young Matt Damon. Um, I'll jump in. So this movie, um, and we don't need to give any more plot because basically it just becomes a courtroom drama after that. And, you know, but to your point, Connor, things get muddled and not in a way ultimately that becomes overly interesting because the movie essentially gives up on tackling or facing the conflicting moral dilemmas of the two sides of the story. So basically what you learn early on is there is a tape of the crowd from the embassy that from a security camera. Pretty yeah. obviously, this I don't think is really a spoiler. The movie doesn't really do much to to dissuade you from this. Pretty obviously, early on, will prove that there were people in the crowd firing up at the rooftops of the embassy, right? And Bruce Greenwood, who's the national security advisor, is has decided decided to bury that tape, right? Because his whole contention is, why should the reputation of the united states suffer at the hands of this one crazy army guy this one crazy soldier you know who yeah. is past his prime and finally lost it and da, da 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 okay so here's what's interesting and what's good filmmaking with freakin at the beginning of this movie when it's all going down in yemen as a viewer when they're getting shot at when they fire back when he decides to fire back i as a viewer in that moment understand it and 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 i'm almost saying what what are you doing fire back like they're they're firing at you like go do it do it or what hesitates you're like well not and even before that like it's so bad and they have gotten the art they have gotten the order to not fire right and that's a whole nother thing is like they've been told to not engage as best as they can right and then all ultimately uh jackson makes the call to not do that so You're almost understanding how they're pinned down and how scary this is. And then he makes the call and immediately, and this this is, I think, where the good filmmaking comes in. 
you watch these people get mowed down and yeah. you immediately, it is or at least, or at least I, as a viewer, yeah. I immediately regretted any sort of feeling that they should have yeah. done that. Right. Yeah. And then you see all these dead people and it's very kind of, it's harrowing. And then that's basically the end of, of that bit. And I think the complexities in that moment make for a very compelling movie. And then basically the movie becomes less about did Sam Jackson do the right thing than did it's it's less about the moral implications of his decision and more about the legal implications. And it's weird because you're I kind of was expecting a scene where Sam Jackson almost breaks down and admits that like all of the killing is too much, right? This idea of like, yeah, this is too much. And what's so funny, dude, and I was thinking about this is and I don't know if you've seen The Hunted, but freaking makes another movie with Tommy Lee Jones three years later that handles this exact thing way better in The Hunted. Because Benicio Del Toro, it's basically Rambo, except it's like a it's like Rambo one with more psych in it. And it's yeah. I actually really kind of like The Hunted because it's it's almost like freaking, I don't know if I'll say learning from this movie, but it's almost like freaking being like, let me try this again and really hone in on kind of the psychological nature of being a soldier during wartime and, and bringing it back to rules of engagement. Yeah. The movie basically misses an opportunity to your point. Cause it is a yeah. provocative pitch and it becomes this thing of like the movie expects you to root for Sam Jackson. And after what the movie's shown you, you're kind of like, I don't know. Like, yes, obviously, you, you know, he, those those men are under his command. He lost men. And yes, there were people firing up at him. And yes, that's horrible. But it becomes this thing of what, you know, is, is, a, is a Yemen life worth less than an American life? I mean, and that's that is a truth that the movie really does fail to to yeah, tackle it, and, and, and it bungles it and there. got and got criticized for the the yeah. the um I just I have this article here. It got criticized when it came out and the American Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee r- really came out against this movie. Uh yeah. the Yemen government called it very racist, obviously. The committee called it one of the most quote unquote probably the most racist film ever made against Arabs by Hollywood. Uh a spokesman from that committee said. Um, I don't know if that's necessarily true because like some of the later Rambo movies well, sh- are like, sure. you know, are like way worse. But yes, sure. it's and and I think and I guess my point is only three years later with The Hunted. I do think he the focus is a little bit better. And it's it, and it's, you know, I, obviously he's he's punting on Arab relations because that movie's it's Benicio Del Toro and uh, and uh, Tommy Lee Jones. But if if what he's after and what Gagan is after in this movie is exploring the psyche and the complexities of being an American soldier during wartime, it only goes halfway. And I think that in itself is it's almost worse than Rambo three, where it's like they don't even try. You know what I mean? Like the attempt yeah. and the failure makes it almost worse in my opinion. And it surprised me because I remembered liking this movie and really by the end of this movie, they choose a couple beats here that really you're meant to be like, yes, Sam Jackson, that's all okay. And I'm like, no, 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 nope. No, it's not. That, I, like, that's Yeah, I'm glad you said that because like I, so I 
kind of even even as this movie got into its dicey territory, I continued to enjoy it as a viewer. But, interesting, interesting. But but I'm also acutely aware of the fact that like freaking and company do not think like are not they're not doing the things that that I kind of think and want them to be doing because like even as it goes on, you know, this this movie leans into the like aren't brown people scary thing in a way that the movie and freaking are kind of convinced is correct right and they they truly don't to your point question sam jackson enough but as a viewer i can like and that's what i think is interesting all of the things that guy pierce and bruce greenwood and company are bringing up i found myself agreeing with right and i don't think the movie leans into that enough like and even tommy lee jones in in the courtroom scenes when it becomes a little bit more of a of a courtroom drama in the second half of the movie he's using a tactic to prove yeah. sam jackson's innocence that is like deplorable a little bit and like not a little bit it's deplorable and the movie doesn't really know that and that's the big bummer about this movie is that there are like nuanced interesting things going on here that like it doesn't really i think want to focus on yeah and look freaking like we said and we can talk about freaking for a minute before we move on to our last movie but Freakin explores controversial elements of different of of similar professions in other movies, right? To live and die in LA comes to mind, where it's kind of about the idea of a death wish with uh, the William Peterson character, and kind of the idea of like the cop as warped action hero, which I think is an interesting thing to think about now. I mean, as as much as any sure. other time, right? Of course, yeah. and then. Um, Rampage is a movie. I honestly don't. I feel like I saw it a long time ago. I feel I feel like I have it as unwatched in my letterbox because it was so long ago. Very controversial movie that's dealing with some very intense themes. Um, and even, you know, I mean, in a, even a more supernatural way, The Exorcist and religion and everything. So he is, you know, cruising, for God's sakes, right? Like, this is a guy who always is wants to explore provocative elements. Blue Chips, which is a movie that I really like um, from the early 90s, is about gambling in sports and uh corruption in the ncaa movie that stars Shaq stars uh i think it's penny hardaway as a matter of fact and um and uh nick nolte and yeah it's interesting to see how he kind of punts it in this one and he defended the movie to those racist claims he's very outwardly defensive of kind of the movie he made he called this movie a hit which prompted me to look up <laughs> mr freakin and the hits he had alleged made and i i texted you about this because i said to you i was like connor guess what the last hit movie william freakin if you look at the receipts and you know how much print advertising costs and so da, 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 guess what the last out and out hit movie william freakin made was and what did you guess connor you said what did you think it was did you say blue chips I and mean, you might have said blue chips i think i did i think that Which was blue yeah. chips you know i think did okay it certainly was not a hit i think it might have lost a little bit of money um but the answer to the question was the exorcist right he made a few smaller movies uh boys in the band among them got his first huge hit with the french connection which was a monster won oscars obviously great masterpiece immediately followed it up two years later with the exorcist which was even bigger obviously very controversial huge movie and then his his next movie which is also a masterpiece but 
got killed by Star Wars, famously, is The Sorcerer. Which is a great Which is movie. a remake yeah. of another great movie, The Wages of Fear. And I would encourage every single person who listens to this podcast, do stop this podcast right now. Rent, stream, Sorcerer. The movie's amazing. And since then... He really did not have a hit. And we were talking about this. You know, he did um, Cruising, which was kind of a movie with Al Pacino where he plays a cop who infiltrates gay clubs in New York City trying to find this murderer. That movie is well, I don't well, it's 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 well remembered now, though. It's it's its criticisms and its portrayal of the gay community i know has gotten a lot of criticism i it's a, frankly a movie i haven't really seen uh, i need to go back and rewatch. um there's also multiple cuts of it as well deal of the century was kind of a failure with chevy chase gregory hines and sigourney weaver probably a future sigourney b-side to live and die in la is is very well remembered and a very good movie um it made 17 it cost six so you could maybe call that a modest hit Rampage was a debacle. The Guardian was a debacle. Blue Chips is, uh, like I said, a good uh, sports movie. Cost 35, makes 23. Jade, written by Joel Esterhouse, is a debacle, though kind of a fun movie to watch now. Be like David Caruso and Jade. We all remember the famous line from The 40-Year-Old Virgin. And then, yeah, Rules of Engagement cost 60, makes 70, but it's hard to call that a hit when you think about whatever they spent for advertising. The Hunted, same thing. And then smaller movies, Bug and Killer Joe, do okay, but certainly don't make anybody a lot of money. So it's just crazy to think about this, you know, great director, admittedly a great filmmaker who's made a lot of good movies really hasn't made now and out hit since 1973 it's just wild yeah it is really sort of the the, the wave that he kind of rides off of that one two punch of french connection and the exorcist is huge like and i actually don't know i mean how many other filmmakers get that get that shot without re-upping right like totally in, in some capacity like you know, not that I'm comparing them as filmmakers, but even if you wanted to compare it as a run similar to somebody like M. Night Shyamalan, like he at least re-ups with The Visit eventually, right? Where it's like makes smaller movies that do really, really well. And well, kind of- and freaking basically tries to do that with Killer Joel and, and Bug, right? And so like, yeah, sure. you know, to, to, to less success. And like he's older now and he's written his autobiography and, and you know, he's a legend. So this yeah. takes nothing away it's from the It's just interesting because you think, you think of him as... It, like that one, two punch is so good that you think of him as sort of one of the greats of all time. Um, and it's, and maybe he is, I'm not really disputing that. It's just, it's interesting when you weigh that, that career against, uh, some of the other people you might consider the greats of all time. Before we move on, I do want to talk obviously Same. really quickly about Samuel Jackson and his performance specific to this movie. Um, I think the performances at large are generally pretty good in this movie like they i buy their dynamic as i mentioned earlier it i had to look up their ages while watching this movie because they didn't seem to me like contemporaries partly because i thought sam jackson was younger i thought uh tommy lee jones was older but they are only two years apart so uh it's a little weird philip baker hall plays tommy lee jones dad and that's like that yeah. feels weird because yeah, they're like a like decade should, apart and it feels like they should be brothers or something um but it it, yeah, I don't know. I think both of them do fine enough in this movie. You know, you get the you get the moments in this movie that try and sort of, I think, I, and again, I, I don't know if this is a direct thing that they were actually trying to do. It just feels that way. But try and evoke, 
you know, big bombastic courtroom drama moments like, you know, did you order the code red? I want the truth. You can't handle the truth, that kind of stuff. And it doesn't ever get really get there. Um, but there is a moment where Guy Pierce confronts Sam Jackson on the stand, uh, asking him about basically saying waste the motherfuckers right in order to kind of get a rise out of him well if you got it on tape right then that's what i then that's what i said this is exhibit q a tape recording made aboard the uss wake island of all radio communications received that day including your exact words your honor with your permission i would like to play this tape well if you got it on tape then that's what i said they were killing my marines so yeah i said it waste the motherfuckers are these the motherfuckers? Objection. Overruled. Yes. These? Objection. Yes. These? Objection. Overruled. Yes. Are these the motherfuckers that you ordered to be wasted? Your Honor. Major. Yes! Your, your Honor. The crowd in front of the embassy had no weapons, did they, Colonel? Objection. We found no snipers' weapons either. Yes, they had weapons! You think there's a script for fighting a war without pissing somebody off? Follow the rules and nobody gets hurt? Yes! Innocent people probably died. Innocent people always die. But I did not exceed my order. There are rules, and Marines are sworn to uphold them. I was not going to stand by and see another Marine die just to live by those fucking rules. And in that moment, right, you get, like, I think it's obviously it plays into the jokey way that people think about Sam Jackson as, as always yelling. Right. right There's snakes like on the, a plane, blah, blah, yeah, blah. And yeah. then the Chappelle, like the Chappelle show, Sam Jackson beer thing that he does where he's like, haven't you seen my movies? That's how I talk. Right. Like obviously that rings true because some, so many of these star making performances just have him yelling or whatever. And so you get that moment and it's fine, you know, whatever it's fine. It just doesn't, it, you know, it, I just don't think this movie presents itself well enough in the complications of of where of the actual scenario within the movie and to your point i do wish there was maybe a slightly more cathartic scene with sam jackson where he really does kind oh, of totally. reconcile it cuz it's not like he's not up to the task and it's not like he doesn't even really you know his performance up until that point in the movie kind of has some some version of like a still waters run deep type thing and again, it's not a bad performance. He's up to the task, but it just, I don't know. It it could have been written and directed with more nuance that he's certainly capable of achieving. And it's just not there, which is a bummer. Yeah. Um. So these two roles, as I mentioned, uh, another scenario where it wasn't supposed to be Sam Jackson, but it wasn't supposed to be Tommy Lee Jones either. Uh, this was originally in development with Scott Rudin, and it was supposed to be Sylvester Stallone and Richard Gere. Oh, that's interesting. And well, they and who they don't necessarily get along. Those two, it, exactly. And so I think that something like that adds an interesting element to a movie like this, where you know, if it's right. I mean, in my if they were, in my if they were mind, able in, to get through it, it could have been you, more interesting. You, you, and you have. I don't know. You have. It, I. Who knows why it fell apart? Um, but yeah, it's it's interesting. There are things that were added, particularly as it pertains to the videotape subplot in this movie, that were added after test audiences kind of panned the movie. Um, and the stuff with the videotape more sort of clearly exonerating Samuel L. Jackson was not initially in the movie. Ah. And Freakin' had initially intended it to be a way more ambiguous thing of the entire movie playing out without you ever really being sure what happened one way or the other. Interesting. And 
when I read that, I was super bummed because that I think falls a little bit more in line with like the more interesting aspects of the movie. But that said, this takes us into the 2000s. Um, by the end of that decade, obviously, he's playing Nick Fury, so he's kind of in the mode of his career that we currently know. But right after this movie, he is, <laughs> uh, he is in a movie called, I guess, depending on where you live, Formula 51 or The 51st State. And uh, he plays a character named Elmo McElroy, uh, who right. is a chemist uh, turned drug dealer after a stint in prison uh who apparently has come up with the formula for a like mind-blowing uh sort of head drug what, and it's yeah it's, it's 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 51 times more effective than ecstasy and da, 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 yeah he, he lays it out in the movie and it's directed by ronnie Yu. we have covered uh one of his other movies before uh during the jet lee podcast we talked about fearless a movie that i liked quite a bit uh and i think as did i yeah you too connor yeah and um i hate this movie i hate this movie <laughs> i i <laughs> this saw movie, it many you, years ago um yeah i feel like you know Speaking of Pulp Fiction, this is kind of one of the last bastions of that kind of the afterbirth of Pulp Fiction-y movies, Pool Hall Junkies, Suicide Kings, what things to do in Denver when you're dead, you know, um, uh, this movie, The 51st State. So this is a nothing. This is nothing. It's 85 minutes. Meatloaf is the bad guy who Sam Jackson betrays. And he flies to London to sell these pills that he's made, you know, presumably with the backing of Meatloaf and, you know, then double crosses him. And Meatloaf hires a young Emily Mortimer to kill Elmo at first, but then not kill him. And Elmo's local handler in London is Robert Carlyle, who, for my money, is the only reason to watch this movie. He's pretty funny. And the whole movie is just they need a buyer for the drugs, right? They've lost their buyer. They need a buyer. Reezy Vons is a potential buyer. Um, and while they're trying to find someone to buy the drugs, they're being chased by bad guys. Meatloaf is on the hunt. Emily Mortimer is going to kill Sam Jackson and then maybe They're protect Sam corrupt Jackson. cops who are also after him. And sorry, designer drug is the term oh, I was yes, trying to think of before. Oh, yes, designer drug. Thank you, yeah. thank you. And, and so he... Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so there he's shopping around essentially this formula for this designer drug. And the hijinks that happen along the way, I mean, you obviously mentioned that, you know, the Pulp Fiction sort of uh, comparison and... It is one of those things, this movie, and look, you know, like we mentioned, we liked a movie like Fearless, so I'm not really trying to drag Ronnie Yu, but- Well, and Ronnie Yu you, directed, you know, Bride of Chucky, which a lot of people like too. You know, he's a good filmmaker. It, yeah. it And there is there is certainly a sense of style to this movie, obvi obviously, you know, to a uh, sort of an overbearing extent, but, um, but it really is a reminder of, you know- Maybe as, you know, looking back now, maybe as kind of exhausted as I've become by like the templatized style of somebody like Guy Ritchie, right? Right, right, right. It does sort of almost make me realize like, oh no, but Snatch is really good, right? Like when you watch a movie like this, right? Like sort of a- a I mean, dude, uh, Snatch, I mean, Rock and Rolla, it can, you know what I mean? No, no, like, yes, no, like, no, that's kind like, of it, right? Uh, like it's, it's, it's sort of as a put. You know, and and again to your point, like comparing it to you know you all those Pulp Fiction ripoff movies. When you actually watch Pulp Fiction, you're like, yeah, no, this is the way that you do it, right? And 
it is just crazy because it does, you know, I, I never really thought to myself of being super, you know, missing a movie like rock and roll or whatever. Um, but, uh, but here we are and it's that, it's that kind of movie and it's, it's a bummer. Cause like, so this feels like a movie that he feels right for, right? Like, so I guess in a world where this is hypothetically a better version of itself, it still works or whatever. Again, it's, I, get, I, feel like, I don't know. I, I, I feel like it's mostly, I feel like it's mostly just because he's Sam Jackson and it's, yeah, you I know, mean, and he, I, I, yeah, I said to you before we press record, I'm bummed we're ending with this one because for me, it's like, this is, I think, one of his worst performances. Like, I, I know what you mean. Um, it, you know, it feels he is playing the way you think of Sam Jackson, right? Yeah, like, in the, yes, the most in this movie, and there's like nothing more to yeah. it. He wears a kilt, and the joke in the movie is you don't know why he wears a kilt, and it's like that's i guess supposed to be the, funny and, and the, it's like, the movie constantly just is like what i found so weird it's like you have all of these people who are live in the uk and are from the uk and are like what's that skirt it's like you know it's a kilt like what i don't like why are we all pretending like we don't know what it is right they're making a like weirdly american style joke of like what's with the skirt yeah. right it's very weird the movie basically doesn't work on any level it i it you mentioned to me, and it's the perfect word for it, that this movie is rancid, and it just yeah, and is. it's like it's also there's just also lines yeah. like Meatloaf who plays Lizard, who's like the ultimate big bad. He has these lines that are very kind of repulsive, and obviously he's the bad guy, so fine, but he delivers the titular line. He's like, "All England is, all Britain is, whatever is the fifty first state, right? Okay, fine, you know, all of America, haha, okay," and it's like. There's just not much here. I mean, honestly, and the it's way like, the movie chooses to kill him is just oh, I hate so, it. It's I so it. it's so in line with yeah. There's this so many gross movie. out like, gags that I'm just yeah, like it's a gross, whatever like yeah. It's I don't know. Don't seek it out. It's not good. No, um, I mean it's on Prime. Don't watch it. I mean I hate to be this guy. It just <laughs> it's, it's certainly one of the worst yeah. movies we've covered on this podcast. There's a weird thing that this movie does, and also Rules of Engagement does, and it led me to a question that I wanted to ask you because I know other movies do this. What is your thought on movies that end with post movie sub um, post movie titles? Oh, like as if they're real people. Yeah. I mean, I don't care particularly, but it doesn't. For both of these movies, it doesn't add anything. So rules of engagement ends with like these, blah blah blah. Went on to do this, blah blah went on to do this. And yeah, it, and it and it even resolves plot points, which I think is a little okay. And and this one is there's less of that, but then it's like Elmo did this, and nobody ever knew why I wore a kilt. Yeah, I mean, you're like, what is it for? For these like, for wait. these two movies, I yes, I don't really understand yeah. why you have it. Yes. Um, I just always, I, again, it's not something that outwardly bothers me, but it always becomes a question that I ask myself when I see it happen. Cause it is a very like, you know, I don't know. It's a very weird. I mean, it's, 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 it's cutesy. Like with the rules of, of engagement, it's a more jarring, I suppose, because it's like, that would be one where you'd be like, Oh wait, did this happen? Like, you know what I mean? Yeah, but, yeah. but, um, but yeah, with formula 51, it's just like a final punchline that doesn't work. I mean, honestly, that's, that's the amount of formula 51 that I'm willing to do. Um, it's not, you know, it's, a, it's a, it's an uninspired performance. I don't think that's speaking out of school. When you think about Sam Jackson, no, he's, he's no. done, 
He's made well over a hundred movies. Um, I think even stuff like snakes on a plane, which obviously I feel like now people kind of make fun of or whatever. He's funny in that movie. I, you know, I don't know that. I well, in that the movie, movie knows what it is. Yeah. And not, and not and, that a movie like formula 51 doesn't know what it is. It totally does. But what it is, is just this like juvenile, like I could have, I could have written formula 51 at 10 years old. Yeah. Do you know I mean? Like it's like it's like that kind of a movie, and it just. But yeah, could, could you have yeah. gotten the twenty eight million dollars that it was budgeted at? Could you have done that? The at probably 10 at ten, maybe. I don't know. Who yeah, knows? maybe you were your your ambition knew no bounds at ten. Um, yeah, of course. But I mean, so <laughs> Sam Jackson, just to kind of put a button on his career, that's a little bit more positive as we kind of wrap up. I would just say, and Connor, maybe you can have a couple of these too. Maybe some performances that are lesser known that you would want to seek out from the man himself would be i'm just looking as kind of this is i mean so 187 is not a great movie but he's that's a good performance um so i would say probably future b-side seek that out we talked about changing lanes that's kind of a b-side great performance in that. really good performance by him you know what's I, another I good really, performance i mean this isn't really a b-side i like him in swat actually i think he's pretty fun in swat um, i and, was gonna say go you know what uh you know it's a movie that i don't think is particularly good but i think he gives a good performance in is coach carter Oh yeah, Coach Carter is. I think it's a fine movie. He gives a it's, re- I, it's, it's whatever. But he, he, he gives kind of, a really think, good performance of Coach Carter. Yeah, he sort of rises rises above it a little. Directed bit, I think. by underrated film director whose name is Thomas Carter, who directed a little movie called Save the Last Dance, and also directed a movie uh, called Gifted Hands, the Ben Carson story before Ben I, before Ben Carson <laughs> became the man we know now. Yep. Now. Sam Jackson, we love him. He's doing a million things. So I'm sure we'll see him in a million things. Um, I kind of, I'm, uh, you know, hate haters gonna hate. I kind of hope he stops playing Nick Fury at some point. That being yeah. said, he makes other stuff too, so it's not like he's not making other stuff. He's the sequel to The Hitman's Bodyguard. I think they made with Ryan Reynolds. That's fine, as fine as just fine goes. I'm sure he'll be in other kind of more interesting things. Didn't he make another movie with Tommy Lee Jones called The Sunset Limited? Is that he did? Th- that's a movie I would encourage people to watch. I like that movie. Yeah, he. I feel like anything I would encourage people, at least recently, anything I would encourage people to watch. You you probably have already seen, right? Like I think you know. I don't know where uh, listener you stand on the movie Glass. But I think undoubtedly, uh, he's oh, yeah, I love Glass, one of the best yeah. parts. He, I, I enjoy it quite a bit as well. But I think even if you don't tend to enjoy that movie uh, for various reasons, I think he is undoubtedly the best part about it. I um, agree. Yeah, I agree. And uh, and so that's kind of nice to see. He sort of takes center stage in a way that you hope he would in a in a movie where he plays the title character. And I think that was kind of the thing I was thinking about in terms of what I would want to see from him. Is you just, you know, he largely, I feel like we were basically introduced to him as character actor and he, for the most part, never really escaped it, right? Had, is obviously the lead in a few movies, some of which we've mentioned here, but, but I think even in his career now, he's basically a character actor and, um, I don't know. I looking at his filmography when we were doing this, it did make me realize how much I enjoy him when he's a lead. And I kind of 
would continue to say that as you know as we generally undervalue him which is unfortunate i i hope i get to see even, even more lead roles yeah. uh in, 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 in a sort of front and center capacity but um but I guess until then, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if we revisit him someday because, like you said, oh, Dan, he's got definitely. he's got a ton of B sides. So this probably won't be the last you've heard of him uh, on this podcast. But um, I guess as we wrap it up, Dan, you got anything you want to mention? Anything? Yeah, I mean, we. So I interviewed Josh Hartnett. I think, as I mentioned in the last episode, that's it's a up very now. good interview. Thank you. It um, was yep. a fun interview. Uh, I also reviewed his new movie on VOD, Most Wanted, which I liked. I reviewed. Gregor Jordan's new movie, Dirt Music, recently. I reviewed um, the new movie with Gemma Arterton called Summerland, which I liked quite a bit. Um, so I've been kind of doing that type of stuff, which has been fun. And I, I think I mentioned this before. We just released Fathom, which is this project that we're doing. We're writing stuff. It's radio plays. It's fiction. A uh, bunch of different voice actors uh, from our creative life, me and Connor's creative life. It, that's been fun. If you're listening somewhat recently to this published podcast, um, it's about three stories now. Um, there'll be a few more, some short videos as well coming up. So give that a listen. If you can stand our voices, you can certainly stand those stories and uh, let us know what you think. And that's Fathom, F-A-T-H-O-M. You can find it where you find podcasts, Spotify, everybody else, everywhere else. And that's it. That's it. Uh, Connor, what do you, what about you as you wrap us up? Uh, well, you can find me on Twitter at scruffy looking. You can find this podcast on Twitter and Facebook at TFS B side. Um, so it's pretty soon we're going to be finishing out, um, you know, this was obviously one of our listener decided episodes, uh, in a series of polls. So we're going to be finishing that out relatively soon, uh, in the coming month. And yeah, uh, we have we have a guest we want to try to get on for Tashira Mufuni. So as as we keep recording, bear with us. You know, that might be a little bit w- uh, coming, but but we want to try to get her on. So that's that's yeah, the, it would, that's it would be very cool if we can make it happen. Uh, but we will obviously, uh, as promised, be covering Tashira Mufuni at some point. Um, and then maybe a couple other ones, you know, in between uh, Dan and I have kind of loosely talked about. But Uh, Yeah, so keep a lookout for those. And in the meantime, listener, thanks for listening to our motherfucking podcast. (laughs) Who's the black private dick that's a sex machine to all the chicks? You're damn right.